Good evening, everybody. Good to see everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 15? We actually got uh, to verse 5 last week, but we need to back up and just get a running start again. Actually, chapter 14, well, no, we won't back up that far, but at the end of chapter 14, we saw God deliver his people from the bondage of Egypt and how that um, the Egyptians uh, at one point started to have second thoughts, and so Pharaoh took some of his choices, guys, and they started after the children of Israel in the wilderness. And uh, you remember the story how God parted the Red Sea, of course, and led his people through on dry ground. When the Egyptians uh, started to follow, uh, at one point God just closed the waters up on the uh, Egyptian army, and they were all drowned. So now they're on the other side of the uh, Red Sea. They begin their journey in the wilderness, as we saw last week, with a song. Now, this is the first song mentioned in Scripture. And verse 1, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He, uh, his chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Now, again, for those who teach that Moses and the children of Israel really didn't cross the Red Sea, uh, they crossed a small marshy body of water to the north called the Sea of Reeds. Uh, this song presents a little bit of a problem, okay? Because cast into the sea, drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have, it's hard for the two inches of water to cover somebody in depths, okay? The whole Egyptian army. They sank to the bottom like a stone and so on. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap or like a wall. So that's the idea. God parted the Red Sea, and on both sides of the children of Israel, they walked through on dry ground, the water was like a wall to them. Uh, he goes on to say, the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The Hebrew, the Hebrew is a word that uh, speaks of like when milk curdles and becomes a solid. Okay, So God caused the waters to actually become solid. If you were, to, if you were walking with the children of Israel on that day, you would look to either side uh, of you and you would see the Red Sea was a wall, but it had congealed. It became solid. And the enemy said, verse 9, I will pursue. Maybe that was how the enemy felt emboldened. The water was no longer a liquid, it was a solid. So they figured, well, we'll just go through too. So the, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My, these are the Egyptians, what they're saying. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. The Egyptians talking about the, the Jews. But you blew your wind. Now, it's directly back at God. But Lord, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will, will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. This is going to cause all of God's enemies to be terrified. When they hear the great displays of Jehovah's power, uh, they're all going to be terrified. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Guys, the purpose of God parting the Red Sea and allowing his people to cross over on dry ground and then drowning the Egyptian army was twofold. First of all was to teach his people to have faith in his power. That to the God of Israel, there's nothing impossible. And God wanted to communicate that to them very quickly in their walk with him, that they were serving an all-powerful, almighty God. There was no reason to ever doubt his power or be fearful or not to have faith in his promises because he was able to do exactly what he promised. And he's showing them a little taste of his power right here to embolden them in him and to strengthen their faith. That was number one. Number two, the purpose was to strike fear into the hearts of all of God's enemies so that the Jews would have an advantage right up front because everybody they went up against would have heard the exploits of the God of Israel and uh, the enemy would have been terrified even before the first arrow was fired or the first sword was, uh, was swung. We, we see this 40 years later when Joshua is about ready to lead the people into the promised land and he sends out the two spies. You can read about this in Joshua chapter 2 and they come to the house of Rahab who I believe has become a believer at this time. I, you know, you get our Joshua study, chapter 2, you'll see what I mean. But what does she say to these two spies? She says, everybody in this city is terrified of you because of your God. We all heard what he did. This is 40 years down the road. We all heard what he did and how he parted the Red Sea and you walked through on dry ground and yet drowned the Egyptian army, the strongest army on the face of the earth. I'm ad-libbing. That's what she was thinking. All right. So God wanted to strike terror in the hearts of the enemies of his people. Exodus 15, verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. Again, that's speaking of the day when God brings them into the promised land. He's talking about Jerusalem there. The mountain was, was Jebus, the stronghold of the Jebusites. And in the days of Noah... Days of, Noah, days of David, uh, the city was conquered and became Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. So he's talking about that, a future occurrence, obviously. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots, but his horsemen uh, and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them but the children of israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea so this is a little song they're singing catchy little tune <laughs> and such 
Well, you know how it goes, you know. I mean, when you're in this kind of a, you know, singing mood and you're praising the Lord, you know, people want to jump in. So at this point, Miriam, Moses' oldest, older sister, jumps in, verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, and of course Moses, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. Now, there's probably half a million to 750,000 adults. So if half of them are ladies, this is a pretty big deal, okay? I mean, you got a lot of women out there with timbrels and dancing, and, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So they're having themselves, you know, a dancing, singing praise fest out there in the wilderness, and everything is great, and everyone's happy, and they're rejoicing in the Lord. He's given us a great victory. The enemy is wiped out. We see their bodies floating on the, you know, up onto the shore there at the end of chapter 14. Uh, and so they're really happy and really praising God, yet it didn't last long. Verse 22, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of shore, and they went three days in, in the wilderness and found no water. Now, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. The word Marah actually means bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against, well, okay, here we go now. The honeymoon's over. Three days, all right. Didn't take long. The people complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So, in three days, their joy was replaced with complaining. Later... That complaining will contain the accusation, God brought us out of Egypt to let us die in the wilderness. You know, guys, it's amazing to me how people can believe God is strong enough to save them for eternity, but he's not powerful enough to provide their daily needs. Think about that for a second. Many people believe, I think all Christians believe God is strong enough, of course, well, he saved them, so they have to believe it, that he's strong enough to save them. But they just don't believe he's powerful enough to provide the rent, their food, if they need food, and so on. Somehow they stumble uh, at this idea that God is able to provide everything they need on the physical level. Listen, certainly, if God is strong enough to save you, He's strong enough to sustain you. In essence, the, uh, God's people were basically saying, God can't finish what he starts. God can't finish what he starts. He was able to deliver us from Egypt, but he isn't strong enough to get us all the way to the promised land. And I have seen many Christians over the course of my ministry who believe that God was strong enough to save them, but he was not strong enough to keep them, or in other words, to keep them saved. Even though Hebrews 7.25 and many other passages, but uh, Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. It means all the way. Okay, When God starts a work, he finishes it. He was begun a good work in you is going to what? Drop the ball halfway down the road and not finish what's going on? When God starts a work, he's going to see it through. If you were predestined, you were called at one point. If you were called, you were justified. And since you're now justified or saved, you're going to be what? Glorified. It has to be called the golden chain of Romans 8. That's what the theologians call it. When God starts a work, which begins with predestination, it will always end with glorification. 
So if God has saved you, he's going to keep you. He's going to keep you. In other words, he's going to save you all, all the way to glory, all the way to heaven, right? Or as John Newton put it in his timeless classic Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come, tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. What does grace mean? Unmerited favor. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. Grace means gift. You can't earn a gift. You receive a gift. You, you, God is offering you the gift of eternal life. You don't say, well, hang on, Lord, let me work a little bit for it, and I'll take it. No, he says, you can't have it. You can't have it. It's a gift. You, you don't work for a gift. You receive a gift. You say, thank you for the gift. There are many Christians, again, who think that God was able to save them but was not able to keep them unless, not unless, they work like crazy to stay saved. Now, this is the fallacy with the many, many Christians, not the least of which were those in Galatia, the region in Asia Minor. Galatia wasn't a church, it was a region, like Cook County is a region, okay? There were many churches in Galatia. But these churches had fallen into a trap that many Christians have fallen into since. Paul nails it in chapter 3, verse 1, have, in, to verse 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh. In other words, if God saved you by his Holy Spirit through grace, when you simply put your faith in Christ, do you have to keep yourself saved by working and doing all kinds of good works and deeds to stay saved? Paul says, you foolish Galatians. He said, that's absolutely wrong. It's the devil trying to pervert the gospel and so on, okay? Um, look, we're saved by grace. The Spirit of God regenerated us once we uh, accepted Christ. We're born again, made a new creation. And now we belong to God. And he's got us in his hands, John 10. And Jesus said, if the Father and I have got you in our hands, nobody's going to pluck you out. Nobody's going to pluck you out. So when God starts, he is able to finish, correct? Back to Exodus 15. In Exodus 15 now, God's people have been in the wilderness three days. And guys, it's hot. It's the desert, basically, okay? I played football in high school. And... Before the season started in September, we used to start practicing in August. Double practices, morning and afternoon, two hours apiece, ending with wind sprints, okay? August, hot, with a full gear, all right? You, we were not allowed to drink any water until after the whole practice was done. I have never known in my entire life a raging thirst like that. That's only after two hours. This is three days. Three days in the wilderness, no water. These folks... You know, when you are that thirsty, you can't think of anything but water. And so here they're going, now following God, the Shekinah glory, and in the distance they see what looks to be a, a pretty good-sized pond. Now, they're so thirsty, I'm sure they're thinking, is that real? Am I, is that a mirage? <laughs> you know, it looks too good to be true. But the closer they get, the more they realize, no, this is really a body of water. And they're excited now. In fact... The closer they get, I'm sure some started to break ranks and run towards this body of water because all they could think of was how they were going to just stick their head in this water and drink until they were satisfied. And they had every, uh, uh, every, um, every bone in their body believed that that pond was going to satisfy them. When they finally got there, they dropped to their knees and stuck their faces in that water and began to drink. Ah, spit it right out. It was bitter. We don't know what was going on. 
uh, with it, but it was bitter, it was undrinkable. Here's the thing. What they thought would satisfy them turned into a bitter, unsatisfying experience. Do you know how many people in our culture are who are they're unsatisfied, unfulfilled? They don't know where to turn, all right? They're looking for fulfillment, for purpose in life. They're looking for the answer to life. And they get involved with one thing after another. I, was, I gave my mom's eulogy uh, a, couple of week, a week or so ago, and I recounted for those, many of the people there knew her very well and knew her before she became a Christian, but I said, my mom at one point uh, was a seeker of truth. She didn't know what truth was, but she was looking for it. So what did she do? She got involved with all kinds of things. She got involved with, uh, with astrology. Uh, she went to seances. She got involved with hypnosis, handwriting analysis. Now, those of you who knew my mom would say that she never seemed like a weirdo. She was just searching for truth, right? And never really found it. Until one day, after she prayed a simple prayer... Uh, because she just felt so empty inside and had not... And we were raised Catholic, so we knew uh, you know, who God was and all, but she wasn't really looking for the God uh, of our upbringing. And, uh, but she just prayed a simple prayer one day in exasperation, but in her own heart, God, if you're real, you have to show me. And the very next day, a couple of guys from a Baptist church in the area knocked on her door and said, well, look, we're out uh, talking to people about Jesus. Can we t come in and talk to you about the Lord? She was wide open. It was a divine appointment, obviously. Invited them in. They gave her the gospel. She accepted Christ. But all the experiences, all the things that she was drinking of that she thought was going to bring her satisfaction never did. And a lot of people, you know, what happens is these experiences turn bitter. How many people have gotten sucked into the cult looking for truth? And that it became a very bitter experience. How many people thought, you know, fame, that's the answer. I want to be famous. That's the answer to life only to be famous and realize how empty that was, all right? Um, you know, there are those who think relationships, like in John 4, woman by the well, she was one of those. Been married and divorced five times, was not living with a guy, because in her mind, she felt human relationship, to having a man in her life, that was the answer that was going to fulfill her. That wasn't the answer. Men can't satisfy a longing inside a woman's heart, nor can a woman in a man's heart. That's a God-shaped void only Jesus Christ can fill and satisfy course a lot of gals who are looking for a man uh, sometimes they get a hold of a bad guy he's not a good guy and that's a very bitter experience and so on look you have to remember that as we follow the lord now here here's the thing now, i'm not saying all those other things people were following the lord i'm just saying in our text this, this evening they were following god you, you gotta don't miss that he was leading them he led them tomorrow this place of bitterness. When we follow the Lord, He is going to lead us to our Maras at time. And uh, we will experience our share of bitter experiences. Sometimes they're just, as we serve the Lord, we make friendships and things in the body of Christ. Sometimes we have close friends betray us. That's a bitter experience. Uh, sometimes uh, we are ridiculed for standing up for Jesus and doing what's right. That can be a bitter experience because we know we haven't done anything wrong. We've been faithful to the Lord. Or, again, sometimes we lose someone close to us who we love dearly. These are all bitter experiences. But take heart because our passage this evening is telling us that God can turn the bitter sweet. Verse 25, 
So he cried out to the Lord. That's Moses crying out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree. And he cast it into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. The tree, guys, represents the cross, spiritually speaking. In Acts 10.39, 1 Peter 2.24, and Galatians 3.13, the cross is called a tree. A tree. Listen to me. Here's the lesson that the Holy Spirit is wanting to teach us through this little passage here. I think it's one of the most important lessons you're ever going to learn as a Christian. When you're facing a bitter experience, you can do one of two things. You can drink it in until you are full of bitterness, which will then poison you from the inside out. So sometimes people, you know, somebody betrays them or something else happens. They've done something right and and people have turned against them and so on. And so it's a bitter experience. So they they want to drink it in some people. They just want to drink it in and, and it just poisons them from the inside out. Or you can add the cross to that bitter experience. When you add the cross to whatever bitter experience uh, you're going through, um, the tree, the cross, will make the bitter sweet. How? How? Well, the cross reminds us that we died to this world when we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Therefore, whatever we suffer in this life for Him, no matter how bitter it is at that moment, we know it is storing up for us a more glorious eternity in heaven. And folks, that can make the bitter sweet. If I know I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake, if I know that people have turned against me because I've stood up for Jesus, that's bitter. And yet I know that as long as I'm serving my Lord and people want to turn against me and lash out and hurt me and so on, I know that um, it is accumulating for me greater rewards in heaven and by looking at that i can the bitter become sweet yeah what about the young woman and we see this a lot in our culture what about the young woman that suffered the bitter experience of a father that sexually abused her when she was a little girl and this went on for years how bitter is i can't even imagine that i cannot imagine a father molesting his little girl okay my little girl was my little princess i mean I I would never hurt her. I would die to protect her. But there are some men who have their own issues, and um, they have molested their little girl, we'll say, for years, and now she's an adult. How can the bitter of that experience be made sweet by God? Well, she's got to add the cross to her life. She's got to get saved. She's got to put that behind her in the sense that she dies to self now. She can spend the rest of her life feeling sorry for herself, And her father will continue to victimize her in her mind and heart. Or she can turn it to God and use the experience to help other people. That's the definition of ministry, by the way. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, that we comfort others. After we've gone through certain things, with the comfort God has given to us, we turn around and we share that comfort with others. So here's a young woman now who is taking the bitterness of her sexual abuse by her father. And now she's working, counseling other young women who have been sexually abused by their fathers. They can relate to her because she's been where they have been. And she can share with them then how Jesus comforted her when she gave her heart to him, helping these young girls to become Christians. And that will allow God to bring sweetness out of the bitter experience, I'm convinced, that they were made to drink from when uh, they were a little girl. Look, this is not a perfect world. 
Some people hear this, they're horrified. It's like I'm saying it was a good thing she was molested because now she can be in ministry. I'm not saying that. That's ridiculous. We're living in a fallen, evil world. And evil will touch us at times. Now, we can either drink it in and let it poison us, and we hate everybody around us, especially the one who, who uh, took advantage of us, or we can add the cross to it, turn our lives over to Christ, die to self, and let God take that bitter experience, because there's always somebody out there who has gone through or is going through what we have gone through that we can minister to them. Look, guys, the only thing that makes the bitterness of losing my mom's sweet is applying the cross. When I remember myself that she embraced the cross of Christ many years ago when she received him as her Lord and Savior. And now because of that, because she applied the cross to her life, now she's in heaven rejoicing in his presence where there's going to be no more pain or sorrow or tears or death. And I know that someday I'm going to see her again. Listen, that makes the bitter experience of her death sweet. Because I know I'm going to see her again. And that's why Paul the Apostle said when a Christian loses a loved one who was also a Christian, we sorrow. Of course I sorrowed when, I, you know, when my mom passed. I'm still sorrowing because I, I miss her. We sorrow, but not like others who have no hope. Unbelievers have no hope of ever seeing their loved ones again when they die. But as Christians, we know that we will see them again. So we sorrow, but not like unbelievers do. Look, guys, when you add the cross to your situation, listen to me, you're bringing eternity into that situation. That's really what it is. The cross speaks of eternity, okay? How Jesus died on the earth that we all might have eternal life. And when you add an eternal perspective to your situation, suddenly it's not that bitter. Suddenly it's like, okay, they hurt me, but I don't want to see them go to hell. And uh, I want to do whatever I can to see them saved. And suddenly eternity changes everything, doesn't it? That's why we, uh, we need to always see things from a heavenly vantage point. That's what Paul said in Ephesians. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realm. Because he wants us to look at this life from heaven's vantage point. It changes everything. You look at life from this vantage point, you need, you need to read the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is emptiness and vanity where? Under the sun. Solomon said, in Solomon for a long time in his life, many years, looked at life purely from an earthly vantage point. But at one point he realized, I've been looking at life all wrong. And that's why he says in chapter 3, he says, God has put eternity in our hearts. Eternity in our hearts. I wasn't tapping into that, but it's there. Because I'm saved. See? We need to just look at life through eternity. That will make often the bittersweet. Back to Exodus 15, verse 25. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who healed you, Jehovah Rapha. There was a, a doctor, Dr. Uh, S.I. McMillan, who wrote uh, the book, None of These Diseases. 
and he noted that many of God's laws to Israel had a direct impact on hygiene and affected their health. He said practices such as circumcision, quarantine, washing and running water, and eating kosher made a real medical difference in keeping Israel free from disease. So if you're interested, you can get the book and read it. All right. Verse 27, Then they came to Elim, where there were 20, excuse me, 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. Now, guys, after every bitter experience, and God will lead us to these from time to time to grow us and develop us in our faith, our walk, our character, and so on. But after every bitter experience, after every test God brings us to, uh, after that, he brings us to our Elim, which is an oasis in the desert, a place of rest, and refreshment. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. I like what the author Warren Worsby said in that quote. He said, if life were nothing but tests, we would be discouraged. If life were all pleasure, we would, be, we would never learn discipline and develop character. The Lord knows how to balance the experiences of life, for he brought his people to Elim, uh, where they found plenty of water and opportunity for rest. Let's be grateful that the Lord gives us enough blessings to encourage us and enough burdens to humble us and that he knows how much we can take, end quote. And remember once again, now they've gone past Mara, they're at Elim now, but remember once again that they were not at Mara because they had sinned. Oh, that's true. Oftentimes we will experience bitter things because we have sinned and god will use those to teach us you know he uses even our disobedience to teach us many things okay uh david said uh, it was good for me to have been afflicted because i've learned not to go astray so david said i went astray god afflicted me you know through the experience uh, of my disobedience and he taught me some good hard lessons and now i've learned and i am not going down that road again okay but there are many other lessons that God teaches us through our obedience to him. When we're walking with him uh, faithfully, there are many things that he will teach us, many things he will lead us to. Just because you're walking in obedience doesn't mean you're never going to have a bad day. You're never going to have a person turn against you. We th or you're never going to get a bad report from the doctor. We think that, you know, as long as I'm staying faithful to the Lord, he's going to protect me from all of that. And he will protect us from an awful lot. The only thing he won't protect us from are the experiences that he knows we need to grow us. You know, the wilderness was Israel's teacher. Charles Spurgeon described it as, and I quote him, the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. There they went to the university. And yeah, it was the backside of the desert. Moses went to that same university. And he taught and trained them. And they took their degree before they entered into the promised land, end quote. Well, sure, if you're going to go up against giants in the promised land, you better learn awful quick, well, over 40 years, God's faithfulness, his power, and so on, which they needed to uh, learn before they entered the promised land. Well, chapter 16, And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Interesting, okay. Uh, really the wilderness of Sinai, but I, I like sin because it's really, we, we pastors can jump on that and develop it some way. They, but they, they came to the wilderness of sin, 
which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, the King James's, when we sat by the flesh pots, uh, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, says Edward G. Robinson. Uh, so guys, at this point now, they're one month out of Egypt. They've already shifted into high gear with the murmuring and the complaining, looking back, longing for the flesh pots of Egypt. And guys, this attitude of focusing on their fleshly needs, complaining and murmuring when God didn't satisfy their physical cravings fast enough would be what characterizes the wilderness for the next 40 years. You know, it's always sad, very sad, and a definite mark of carnality Whenever the people of God begin to look back at the world with a kind of a longing eye, when things get tough in their walk with God, you know, it's always a mark of carnality when a Christian begins to look back at the good old days. I don't know. I had some pretty good times back when I was an unbeliever, you know. This Christianity stuff is not what I really thought it was going to be. It's pretty hard, but I remember those good old days. Be very careful. Those good old days were not that good. There was some good. Sin brings pleasure for a season. We know that. But um, the problem, let's be honest, the problem with uh, Israel back then and God's people today, when we fall into this trap, you know, we, we, always, uh, we always fall prey to selective memories. Selective memories. You know, here, what are they doing? They're only remembering the good they had, okay, in Egypt. They had meat to eat. They had leeks and onions and garlic, okay? Interesting what you crave once you're walking with the Lord, okay? Uh, the stuff that the devil keeps bringing back to you. Well, remember this. Remember how good it was to have a cold beer on a hot day and this and that, and you went out. and You know what? They didn't remember the bondage. They didn't remember the beatings. They didn't remember you know, all the cruel scourgings and all the things that they had to endure. What is it that we have this selective memory when things start getting rough with the Lord and, uh, you know, it's not easy and the devil's attacking. And, you know, we have to keep our eyes on the finish line. Don't look back. Jesus said nobody who puts his hand to the plow and keeps looking back is worthy of the kingdom. Because, you know, you can't have this divided loyalty. Either you're loyal to God or you're loyal to the world. Pick one, okay? Choose this day whom you're going to serve. But here we see the people letting their stomachs control them rather than the Holy Spirit. And guys, that's what the wilderness is really all about. It's living at the level of your flesh instead of living at the level of the Spirit. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will provide all the things you need on the physical level. But make the spiritual level the priority. Okay? You're children of God now. How you live when you were unsaved and all you could think about was your appetite and your physical needs because you had no Heavenly Father that would provide those things. That was one thing. But now that you've been redeemed, we're not to live like unbelievers anymore, only worried about the physical. We're to rise above that. God has promised us He's going to take care of our physical needs. He knows they're important. He knows we need food, clothing, shelter, water, and so on. 
But he doesn't want us to worry about that. He wants us to live at the level of the Spirit and be consumed with the kingdom of God and building God's kingdom, reaching out to the lost and so on. Exodus 16, verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, somebody has said man's extremities are God's opportunities. So here you've got uh, between two and three million people in the wilderness. They're thirsty, they're hungry, but God is using it to teach them he's able to provide even in the most difficult circumstances. The desert. How are you going to feed between two and three million people in the desert, no food, there's no food there, there's no water. Well, God was going to show them that he was able. And God often uses the everyday and the our everyday needs to test us so that hopefully we eventually come to a point where we no longer worry about them. Because when we come to that point in our relationship with God, when we trust him to provide our basic necessities, then we're able to live at the level of the Spirit consistently. I can't live at the level of the Spirit if I'm always worrying about the physical needs, Right? Now, with the promise of manna, God was going to be testing them in two ways. First, to see if they would obey him and only gather enough for the day and not try to gather extra to keep overnight. And uh, secondly, to see if they would gather enough for two days only on the sixth day. Because the next day was the Sabbath and not, God was not going to send any manna on the Sabbath. So only on the sixth day were they to gather enough for two days. And it wouldn't rot overnight. So this was really a test in faith, okay, that every day they only gathered enough for that day. But Lord, I can gather enough for four or five days. Why can't I do that? Because I told you you can't do it. <laughs> I want you to depend on me for your daily bread, okay? Every day has got to be a walk of faith. But once a week, I'm going to let you gather enough for two days. And it won't go bad overnight. Because the next day is the Sabbath, and I want you to rest and just enjoy me. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Think they would have known that by now? And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Moses and Aaron says to the people. Also Moses says, said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. The Moses and Aaron are reminding the people that their murmuring and complaining about the situation was really not against Moses and Aaron. It was against God who was leading them. We know, Romans 8.28 says that, and we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are the called according to His purpose. We know, we don't see it, but we know it. How? By faith, because God said it. All things are working together for good because God has told us that's what He's up to. Therefore, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything or in all things give thanks. This is God's will. Well, if all things are working together for my good, and I have to believe that by faith, then I should thank God in all things. Because I know that he's working, even though it doesn't look so good at the time. God is up to something, right? Look, we need to understand 
that when we murmur and complain at our circumstances, we're really murmuring and complaining against God who is leading us in those circumstances. And guys, he takes that personally. Because he said to you and I, I promise I'm leading you in the right path. Trust me. It doesn't always look like it's the right path at the moment. But I, I promise you I am leading your life in the right paths to accomplish everything I need to accomplish to make you all that you need to be for me. So when we complain about our circumstances, we're complaining against God, who has orchestrated the circumstances. And he takes that personal. It's not something we want to do is to basically tell God, you don't know what you're doing. You, know, you don't know what you're doing. I can do a better job than you. Here, let me take that wheel for a while. I'll show you. Oh, you know, this is the devil all over, right? Verse 9, Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now understand, God did not give them quail every day to eat, only this first day. The Bible records only one other time God gave them quail to eat, and that's in Numbers 11.31. That meant, guys, it was manna in the morning, manna in the evening, manna at supper time. Three meals a day. Now I'm sure they got very creative in swapping manna recipes, coming up with new ways to make manna. Manicotti, banana bread, uh, you know, all kinds of creative, you know. You realize, of course, as we just saw, the word manna actually means, what is it? It's kind of a derogatory. You know, I can imagine I'm getting up one morning, on the morning the manna fell, looking out and going, what is it? You know, that was not what I ordered. I ordered, you know, and here's what I got. Listen. God never called it manna. That's what Israel called it. God always referred to it as bread or the bread from heaven. Verse 16, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer, hang on to that, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. Now, scholars and skeptics try to tell us this was a natural occurrence or a natural phenomenon and the sap from a particular tree which had sweetness. And that's ridiculous. Okay? You have to understand how much manna God had to generate every day. Look, an omer equals six pints. It was one omer per person. So every day, each person had six pints of manna. Six pints times two million people, roughly. Okay, it's probably more. Let's just say two million, okay? So six pints, okay, six pints every person, two million people, equals 12 million pints, 
or 9 million pounds, or 4,500 tons of manna a day. A day. That's equal, listen, to 10 trains, each pulling 30 cars for each train, and each car filled with 15,000 pounds of manna per day, over a million tons per year for 40 years. So this was a miracle, okay? And I get a kick out of the skeptics who try to always kind of write off the supernatural and make it to some kind of a natural phenomenon. Ridiculous, okay? This was a boatload of manna that God dropped on these folks every single day, right? And it says in verse 16, Let every man take for those who are in his tent. I believe what verse 16 is actually saying is this, that every adult had to gather manna for themselves. But the head of each family had the further responsibility of gathering manna for his children. The ones that were young, were not adults yet, those still living under his roof or under his tent, okay? Um, the idea being, though, that every person had to gather manna for themselves. That was a very important stipulation. One author said, and I quote, The bread from heaven was to be gathered on an individual or a family basis. God did not command, uh, command the creation of a tribal manna gathering and distribution center. Every household had to provide for itself, and a rich family could not hire a poor family to do their work for them, end quote. And we'll see why in a moment. Verse 17, Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. Now, what it seems to be saying is no matter how much manner each, each person collected, whether a little or a lot, it was always sufficient. A miracle, they say. Well, that could be. I'm not saying it wasn't that way. Others, though, say, well, it really wasn't a miracle, but the principle of sharing our abundance with those who had a need or a lack. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, those who couldn't gather much might have been too old or too sick or even handicapped. So others gathered more than they needed and shared out of love, not law, with the others. The principle seemed to be, gather what you need, share what you can, and God will see that you are never in need of necessities. This is becoming more and more important and pertinent to us today as many are losing their jobs. The problem for the church is that the government has usurped the responsibility of the church to show the love of Christ and sharing necessities with those in need out of the abundance God has given to us. And the church has let the government become God, quote-unquote, in people's lives. And so now people who receive from the government love the government and depend on the government and not on God through his people, to help them in times of need, end quote. And that's where we have come to. There was a time when God used physical needs and the church helping the poor with soup kitchens and the Salvation Army and Pacific Garden missions and all kinds of missions and things like this where uh, in hard times God's people would mobilize to feed the poor. It was a great opportunity then to share the gospel with them. And they came to trust God as a provider. God using his people as his representatives and so on. But now the devil has caused that to be shifted to the government. So the people love the government. They trust the government. They rely on the government to be their God in a sense. How sad. Verse 19. And Moses said, 
Let no one leave any of it till morning. Now, this is the manna. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. No matter what Moses said, these folks wanted to rebel. But some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is the Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil. Today is the idea. And lay it up for yourselves, all that remains, to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. So they weren't together any manna. In fact, God didn't let manna fall on the Sabbath, okay? So he said, you know, gather enough on the sixth day for two days. Bake it, uh, you know, boil it, whatever you do it, manna, okay? And uh, you'll ha it'll stay overnight. You'll eat it on the Sabbath because you're not to you're rest, okay? Um, verse 25, the Moses said, eat that today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there shall be uh, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my uh, commandments and my laws? I mean, even the Lord is, you know, it's like, why is it that when I tell you something, you decide you're going to do it a different way is the idea. Verse 29, See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore... He gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with manna, is the idea, to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread which I have fed you uh, with in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. Well, later on then, when the Ark of the Covenant was completed, uh, they put a pot of manna inside the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, God supernaturally kept it from going bad. And it became a perpetual testimony of how God provided for them in the wilderness this manna from heaven. Verse 33, then Moses said to Aaron, take a pot, put a, a, a manna, and lay it up before the Lord to keep for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony. That would be the, uh, eventually the, the Ark of the Covenant was called the Ark of the Testimony. So they put the, the pot in there eventually. Verse 35, and the children of Israel ate manna 40 years. Until they came to an inhabited land, they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So, in case you were wondering, that clears that up. Okay? <laughs> Look, as tasty as I'm sure manna was, you eat anything three times a day for four years, it's going to get old. Okay? Uh, for some people. As we're going to see, not everybody. Okay? But for some. But God sustained them all those years in the wilderness. Manna fell on the... 15th started falling on the 15th day of the second month so a month out of Egypt and kept falling every morning until the day they entered into the promised land the manna stopped why because now they ate 
of the variety of the land of Canaan. And you know what? The wilderness speaks of spiritual immaturity. Spiritual immaturity can be very bland. You're like a baby. Babies eat bland things, pablum and stuff like that. But when you're walking in the Spirit, when, you're, when you've grown up in the Spirit, and uh, that's what the promise line represents, life of the Spirit, uh, there's variety, there's excitement. Uh, I'll tell you what, being a Spirit-filled believer and serving the Lord has got to be one of the most exciting things you can do. And there's such variety, because the Lord is always showing you new things. He's always leading you to do new things and so on. Now, as we've already said, the wilderness was a time of testing and teaching. The one important lesson that God was uh, teaching them on a physical level was that he was able to supply their daily bread, as we said. Uh, even in the desolate environment of the wilderness, God was able to provide them with bread every day. They needed that lesson in faith, okay, to learn how to trust him. And while it was true, guys, that God gave them bread every day to satisfy their physical hunger, listen to me now. It was also, this bread was also symbolic of another kind of bread that God would eventually bring down from heaven uh, someday to satisfy man's spiritual hunger and to give to him eternal life. Turn to John 6. And you all know where I'm going. I just told you, John 6, you should know where I'm going. But, you know, Jesus was talking to uh, the Pharisees and things. They didn't believe he was Messiah. They didn't believe he was the one God had promised, okay? And they wanted a sign. They wanted him to prove it. Well, he'd been proven in his whole ministry. But, he, but they said to him, John 6, 31, Our fathers ate manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 47, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat it and not die. So I'm the true bread from heaven. That manna pointed to me. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Going to the cross. So guys, of course, the manna is a type of Christ. And let me finish by giving you uh, eight examples of how, you know, how it points to Christ. I mean, there are dozens we could look at. I just picked out some of the more obvious ones, okay? Uh, manna, first of all, came down from heaven. It was not a product of the earth, just like Jesus, of course. Number two, manna was a free gift from God. It was not the result of man's labor. Number three, it fell each morning all around the camp and all around every person's tent, which meant, listen, you either got on your knees to gather it or you trampled it underfoot. Simple as that. Number four, it fell in abundance and was available for everyone, but you had to gather it or you starved. It was there. All you do is go out of your tent and gather it up. But if you didn't do it, you starved. Look, God won't force you to do your devotions. Okay, we're talking about Jesus now and having our morning devotions kind of in a sense. 
God won't force you to have your devotions and feed on Jesus and his word. You can starve if you want to, and many Christians are starving spiritually because they're really not taking the time. Oh, but I come to church on Sunday. Did God say gather it on Sunday and then you're off the rest of the week? No, every day. And that's the number five. You had to gather it every day. You couldn't gather a lot one day and then take the next four or five days off. You needed to gather a fresh supply each day or it would stink. You know, if we try to get a lot of Jesus one day, okay, and think we can sleep in and live off of that for the next few days, it stinks. If that's what you're thinking, it stinks. The person who says, well, I usually spend 15 minutes reading the Bible in the morning, but today I spent an hour. So I can sleep in for the next four or five days. I can feed off of that, right? Uh, no. Hey, what is that, by the way? You talk about matter. What is it? Well, what is that? Okay. <laughs> Some Christians, they should have matter written across their, you know, what is it? What? God looks at it and goes, what is it? What am I looking at here? Is, are you a Christian or are you not? A, I mean, what is this? I mean, but that's how we often think about the Lord and his word, don't we? We're lazy. We're always looking for shortcuts to our relationship or in our relationship with him. Guys, what do you think if you tried to deal with your wife like that? Honey, I got a little extra time today. Let's talk for three hours, then just leave me alone the rest of the week. <laughs> Don't bother me. We'll be good. We'll just get it all out today. Yeah, we, tell, we say that to the Lord. Lord, I had a little extra time today, so I read my Bible for an hour and a half. Don't bother me now. Let me sleep in for the rest of the week. Okay? Number six, manna was white in color, spoke of Christ's righteousness, and sweet to the taste is spoke of Jesus' fellowship, which is always sweet. Number seven, manna was despised by those who were not the Lord's covenant people. Remember the mixed multitude? Remember it says specifically that when everyone came out of Egypt, they were not all God's covenant people. There was a mixed multitude that had attached itself to God's people. These were unbelievers who didn't want to hang out in Egypt anymore because after all, God is working, Jehovah is exciting, and so they wanted to tag along. They were the ones who complained and murmured first in the wilderness. They were the ones who got tired of the manna first. They were the ones, I'm convinced, that kept complaining about going back to Egypt. Beware of those who call themselves Christians, but are tired of Bible studies and instead crave leeks and garlic, those things that grow out of the earth and are of the world. Turn to Colossians 2. There are those people who have grown tired, those people who call themselves Christians who have grown tired in the church of Bible studies, and they want something that is exciting. And what they are gravitating towards is things that come from the earth, that are generated from this world. Paul admonishes us not to fall into that trap. Colossians 2, starting in verse 8, he said, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human form. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head of over every ruler and authority. James put it this way in James 3.15, the wisdom of this world is not from God. It is earthly, sensual, and demonic. The devil has fed into the church his worldly philosophies. We see it everywhere. Many churches simply give God's word lip service. They don't take it serious. 
They don't think it's inspired. They don't think every word is from God. Everything is God-breathed. As Paul said to Timothy, the word of God was. So they give it lip service. And uh, yet, for the most part, they're looking, for all kinds of, looking to all kinds of other philosophies and worldly things to help people. Psychology and uh, all kinds of Eastern mysticism practices and so on. Look, guys, God's word is bread from heaven and it alone can feed our soul and produce health, strength, and growth for our spiritual men. I know this. The Bible says someday God is going to shake this world. He's going to shake it so hard every material thing is going to be destroyed. But even so, the word of God abides forever, the Bible says. So if you're putting your trust in man, in riches, in whatever fame, fortune, whatever it might be, you're going to be a complete loser someday. If you feed on the word of God and do what God has said, when God shakes this world to its foundation and every physical thing that can be shaken is shaken and destroyed, you will lose nothing because you've invested yourself in the spiritual things of God's word. And number eight, you had to gather the manna early. Once the sun got hot, it melted. It was gone. There's something about doing your devotions in the morning. I'll tell you this. You start your day with God. You won't have to have such long prayers at the end of your day confessing all the things you did that day that were wrong. There's something about doing your devotions early in the morning. And is that what the Holy Spirit was trying to teach us through the fact that they had to gather the manna early? I think it might have been. I really do. Listen, for those of us who are truly born again, filled with the Spirit, we never get tired of feeding on God's Word. Guys, I'm up around 4.30 in the morning. The first thing I do is I get a cup of coffee, I open my Bible, and I just read the Word. I feed on the Word of God. And I can tell you this, after 35 years, it still feeds me and it still moves me sometimes even to tears. Because it's fresh. It's always fresh. I've read that passage a hundred times. And it hit me this morning like a ton of bricks. And I've got tears rolling down my... God loves me. I knew that, but wow, God really loves me. And after all these years, I can honestly say, I've never grown tired of it. I've never grown tired. I still crave it, and it still satisfies me. Because if you're really a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, God makes all things new. He keeps bringing out of the treasure, Remember? Things old and new, whereas the Old Testament becomes new, the New Testament becomes more powerful. That isn't the case with the mixed multitude, phony Christians. Not only is the last day's church infested with them, as the Bible says it would be, but in many instances, they're actually running the church. I'll close with a true story. I got a phone call from a radio listener who told me, in fact, he said, I got a little problem. I want to run by you and ask for your wisdom. Okay. I pray right away whenever somebody says that to me. I don't want to give my wisdom. I want God to speak and get, give him wisdom. But he said, I, I live right next door to a church. And not long ago, they hired a young pastor. And this young pastor is a good man. In fact, I've often seen him walking the streets of the town praying for the town. That's a good man. Good man. And the elders who run this church, really, they're the power brokers. They've been there for a long time, these families. They told the pastor, you're just an employee. We run the church. 
when the pastor opens the Bible to do a sermon on a Sunday morning, the elders afterwards have come to him and said, you know, you have to read the Bible. Just get to the bottom line. Just get to the point you want to make. There is a situation in this little church where there is a man living openly with a woman. Now, this guy is an older guy, and he is, I guess, a good giver to the church. But the pastor and this other guy who's talking to me, uh, this guy's a good, solid Christian, uh, they've gone to the elders, and they have said, look, this is not right. It's sin in the camp. You need to confront this. You need to deal with this. And the elders said, well, we're not dealing with it. We're not dealing with it. Let it lie. We're not going to deal with it. So he says, what do you think I should do? I said, well, how many of you are serious about the Lord and are genuine Christians? Because the guy says, I know that a lot of those guys are not even saved. And yet they're leading the church. I said, well, how many are, are there that are, are really, how many do you think there are? Uh, you know, 10%, 50%, you know, of, of people that really are serious Christians and love the Lord. I think maybe half, he said. And you've gone to the elders, and they will not change. They won't do anything with the situation. They're not taking it seriously at all, right? Yeah, I've gone to them. They, they won't do a thing. I said, well, the time has come then. If unbelievers have taken over the church and taken it hostage, it's time for the true saints of God to leave that church and start their own work, a church that will honor God. One of you guys needs to open up your house and have the pastor doing this Bible studies at your house until it grows into, uh, gets a little bigger, and you can rent a building and, uh, go from there. Let the unbelievers have, let the dead bury their dead. Get out of there. God always reaches into a dead thing and pulls out the faithful remnant, starts a new work. Let him lead you to start a new work, a work that will honor God, because that's a dying work. That's a rotting corpse. You don't want to be associated with that. I, I, I'm a firm believer. Try to work with the situation first. But obviously, there are times when it's beyond help. Then you leave and you start a work where you can really honor God. But we're seeing it today. People that don't really take God's word seriously. Now to me, at very least, that's a very carnal person. At worst, they're not even saved, yet they're going to church. So again, for those of us who love the Lord, know the Lord, filled with the Spirit, we never get tired of God's word. It's never don't read the word of God, just get to the bottom line. My goodness. It's give me the word, right? And, and may God continue to bless that and keep leading us in these last days that we remain faithful to his word because that's how we are alike to this world. Amen. Father, we thank you for your study tonight. We thank you for your word, Lord. So rich, so satisfying, so sweet. We thank you that you've allowed us, Lord, to feed on it, and Father, give us a greater hunger that, Lord, we can't get enough of it. That, Lord, we want to start our day with your word every day. And that, Lord, you'll bless our time in your word, strengthen us through it, feed us, nourish us, satisfy us. And then send us out, Lord, to a hungry world where we can impart to them of the fullness you've given to us from your word. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these times in Exodus, Lord, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.